If you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 25 through 30. If you, uh, if you have a, one of those little half pages of notes, if you just want to write a reference up at the top of the page, this isn't in the notes, it's not going to be in the, uh, in the sermon outline on the screen or anything like that, but one that I think maybe we'll come back to over and over again. Uh, the reference is 1 Corinthians 4.7. 1 Corinthians 4.7 which says this, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Just before we read this passage, let me just kind of walk you through kind of my experience in the week with, uh, with this section of Scripture. I uh, started off intending to do Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And I thought, well, that'll be a, a simple, straightforward passage. We'll do that. It'll be encouraging. And uh, so I, I went, and I started my time of study. And you try to read the verses in context. And the more that I did that, the more difficult I found it to be to separate verses 28 through 30 from 25 through 27. And the frustrating thing about those verses is that they, it seems to be a little bit disjointed. I don't think it is, um, but at first glance it does. And one of the things then that, um, that I came away with in, in my time of study, and I hope to communicate at least in some measure today, is the idea that this rest that Jesus offers to anyone who would come and find it is on the one hand freely offered to anyone who would take it. Anyone. God is no respecter of persons. However, only the, the, the only ones who will come and take the rest that's offered them are the ones in whom Jesus looks restful. You, you follow that? No one comes to Jesus to find rest unless Jesus looks restful. That then, I think, is the nub or the sticking point for so many people in a passage like this. That in order for me to find rest, I need to see where rest is to be found, who offers rest. And unless God opens my eyes to be able to see Jesus as he really is, unless God opens my ears to be able to hear the voice of Jesus through the power of the Spirit in the pages of Scripture, I do not come to Jesus and I do not find rest. And so this statement that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 4 just seemed to encapsulate a lot of um, just kind of the takeaway from this passage, that the more you come to realize your total dependence on a miraculous work of God, even to give you the ability and the desire to rest, even that takes a miracle. The more that you come to wrestle with that, the more you come to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who in the world regards you as superior? Everything that you have has been given to you. You didn't take it. You didn't earn it. You didn't figure it out. It was given to you. And if everything that you have in God through Christ was given to you, 
Where do you get off bragging and boasting and carrying yourself as if you did earn it? Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes or maybe even to infants. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Father, would you give us the grace to be able to humble ourselves in the hearing of your word, to be able to receive what it is that you have spoken and no less through through the very words of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for every member here in uh, in this auditorium. I pray that you would just have your way in them and through them. Father, may we come to the end of this time of worship in the word, marveling at your gift of eternal life that you have given to us freely and supernaturally and sovereignly. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. There are three basic ways that I would probably approach a passage like this. You have it in your notes. It breaks down into three parts. Verses 25 and 26 is all about the Father concealing and revealing. The second part in verse 27 is the Son revealing. And then in 28 through 30 is the Son giving rest. So what I want to do this morning, do it a little bit differently. I'm going to try to walk through the passage with probably very little application, maybe a few side notes here and there, but walk through the passage as it is, and then after walking through the passage to see how everything fits together and what the point is that's being made, then come back at the end and offer maybe three points of application, Okay. So, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. Jesus joyfully confesses that the Father both hides and shows, that he both conceals and reveals. Now, the question is, What is it that the Father is hiding? And what is it that the Father is showing? What are are these things? I praise you, Father, that you hid these things. Just for the sake of time, let me go ahead and give you a short answer. The these things are the works of Christ. 
Jesus says, and we're going to see why he says this in a minute, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount. And the key to that, that section of Matthew is in recognizing that Jesus is uh, distinguishing, distinguishing himself as an authoritative teacher. The chapters that follow that, 8 through 10, 8 through maybe even 11, but mostly 8 through 10, is Jesus establishing himself as an authoritative miracle worker. He does things that only God himself could do. And so we're coming to the end of this section in Matthew where Jesus has done a series of miracles. Healing sick, healing blind, healing lame, raising the dead. And something about the response that Jesus finds causes him to say, I thank you, Father, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent, that you did not give them the ability to know and understand what it was that they were seeing right in front of them or to hear what it is that was being spoken to them. And the question is, why, why would God do that? Right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish but should have eternal life. Doesn't this seem to contradict the very reason that the Father sends the Son into the world? The Son is sent to seek and to save the lost, and yet Jesus is saying that there are certain groups of people from whom the Father has intentionally hidden the message and the work of His Son. The danger here is in thinking that as Jesus walks the earth, and this is timeless, by the way. This is not just when Jesus is on the earth, but this goes down to our time as well. The danger here is in thinking that there are a bunch of people walking the earth who are just these neutral vessels waiting to be filled, who could go one way or the other. And that here comes big bad God the Father, right? The killjoy, the one on the ego trip, has to be smarter than everyone else in the room, and so he blinds the wise and the intelligent. That's not the picture that you get in Scripture, and it's certainly not the picture that you even get from Jesus. Look at, in the verses that precede this, look at who the wise and the intelligent are. If you go back just a little bit further in chapter 11 to verse 16, this is Jesus speaking again. And Jesus says in Matthew eleven sixteen, But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. He's crazy. He's nuts. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Clear as mud, right? Go to the next section, verse 20. Then Jesus began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you not be, uh, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Then Jesus goes in and says, I thank you, Father, that you hid these things from the wise and the intelligent. The wise and the intelligent that Jesus is referring to here are the people that are never satisfied. God sends a messenger to point people to him, sends John the Baptist. And the people say, John's just, he's a little bit too, uh, too extreme. Lives out in the wilderness, he eats locusts, he wears funny clothes. Now, surely this guy can't be from God, because if he were, he wouldn't look so strange. Jesus comes, he looks very normal, even doing the things that John doesn't do, and that doesn't satisfy the people. Oh, well, he eats too much. He's a glutton. He's a drunk. He hangs out with sinners. It doesn't matter who God sends or what he does. The people are not willing to listen. They're not willing to learn. And Jesus even highlights some of these cities by name that have witnessed his miracles and said, if these cities in the past, as wicked as Sodom, for example... If I had been in the city of Sodom back in the Old Testament, if I had done the miracles that I just did in your city, they would have repented on the spot. Wicked, hedonistic, depraved people that they were, even they were not so hard that they wouldn't turn and repent. And yet here you are, so wise and intelligent that you know better than God. Well, if God is going to work, surely he's not going to do it this way. If God were to speak or if God were to teach, he wouldn't do it this way. So the wise and the intelligent are the people who always have an objection, always have a reason, always have an excuse, always have something to say for why this can't be the truth, why this, what God is doing through Jesus Christ, cannot be the way to find truth and to find life. So on the one hand, Jesus says, you're at fault for not recognizing the truth and responding to it. But then on the other hand, Jesus says, but Father, I thank you that you hid it from them. I think the way that this works is that Jesus is essentially saying that God, by hiding these things from the wise and intelligent, has already begun to execute his judgment on a rebellious people. Right? It doesn't matter what God does or who he sends. The people don't want it. They just don't want to see. They don't want to hear. And so in one of the greatest ironic twists that history has ever seen... God judges these people by giving them exactly what they want. A godless existence in spiritual blindness. You enjoy blindness? I'll keep you there. 
But the flip side of that is that it's not as if the Father has determined that no one will see and will understand. It's just that these people won't see and understand. The ones who really aren't looking for God in the first place, no matter what they may say. But there's another group over here to whom the Father does reveal these things. And in Matthew, in this passage, Jesus says that these are the babes, the infants. What's what's the difference between the wise and intelligent and a child. Well, in one sense, children are probably so ignorant they don't know how ignorant they are until they hit 13, I'm told, and then it's all a different story. In contrast to the wise and the intelligent, the children are those who want to know They don't mind asking questions. They don't mind showing their helplessness, their weakness, asking for help, asking for insight. Dad, show me how to do this. Mom, will you tell me this? And so really what you have in a roundabout way is this proverbial statement that you have in Scripture that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in this passage... The grace that God gives to the humble, to those who are as lowly and helpless and clueless as a child, the grace that God gives is nothing less than the ability to see and to know Jesus for who he really is. This has staggering implications for how we live the Christian life, particularly in our witness and our testimony to a lost world. You realize that, right? We'll get to that a little bit later. But this dynamic, this pitting of the wise and intelligent against the childlike ones is still going on today. In the second part, though, in verse 27, Jesus says that concealing and revealing that the Father has done, he's now handed the authority, he's now handed that over to me. Now... It's as if the Father said, okay, I've hidden and concealed. I'm going to reveal to some. But the task of revealing has been handed over to Jesus. So that now, whoever would know the Father has to come to know the Father through the Son. There just is no other way to get to God except by dealing with Jesus. Because the Father has set it up that way. Now, be very careful here. What's interesting in this, in this verse, in verse 27, is that when Jesus talks about these things being handed over to him, he puts an emphasis on the fact that he reveals, right? The Father, in verses 25 and 26, conceals and reveals. Verse 27, Jesus speaks primarily about his act or his ministry of revealing, which oftentimes causes us to think that there's this great chasm that exists between the character of God and the character of Jesus, right? 
well, God in his sovereignty and heavy-handedness, and here comes Jesus, lowly, meek, and mild, and the Father's hiding all this stuff, but Jesus, he just loves everyone so much, he just wants to reveal everything, but his Father won't let him. And yet you find, first off, that Jesus opens this paragraph of Scripture up, this statement up, by saying, I joyfully confess, I praise you that you've done this. Are, are you able to say that kind of a thing when God doesn't work the way that you would expect him to? When you witness to a lost member of your family or when you witness to a coworker or whatever, and you just want to bang your head up against the wall because it's so clear and so obvious, and yet... It's like they're, they're not even in the same ballpark. They don't have a clue what you're talking about. Do you ever go away from those conversations and just have a time of praise and worship? Jesus did. Seems cold and cruel, doesn't it? But there's a reason why. If you flip over just another page or two in Matthew... Chapter 13, verses 10 through 16. The disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see what Jesus is doing? The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what's the deal? If you want people to understand, why don't you just speak clearly? Why couch everything in these parables and in symbolism and all this? It's too hard to follow. Jesus says, that's right. I speak in parables because these people don't really want to hear the truth. So I speak in such a way that those who don't want to hear don't have to hear. They don't have to understand it. But for all those who come, who do want to hear, who do want to receive, I give them the ability to understand what I speak in parables. So what's the difference then between the wise and the intelligent who can't see, who can't hear because they really don't want to and the childlike portion of the crowd who does see and hear? The difference is God's blessing. 
Blessed, blessed are your eyes and your ears because they see and they hear. See, Jesus goes on. You don't have to turn to these passages. We'll have them up on the screen. Jesus goes on to detail, particularly in the Gospel of John, the paradox that exists here. Let me just read through a couple of these. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 43. Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. John eight nineteen. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. You see what Jesus is combating? Jesus is combating this mindset or this notion that there are all these spiritual seekers out there who really do want to know God, who want to have fellowship with the Father. And Jesus exposes the lie. He says, if you really wanted to know the Father, you would come and know me. Because when you see me, you see the Father. You, did you hear what was said in the, in the very first John reference there in chapter 5? You search what? The Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have life. These are people who pour over the Word of God and who say, yeah, I want to know God. And yet Jesus says, no, you don't. Because if you really wanted to know God, if you really were interested in knowing what the Scripture taught, you would see that it's talking about me. But you have closed your ears and closed your eyes to the reality of who I am and who I claim to be and what I offer you so that all your Bible study, all your Scripture reading, all your memorization, all your prayer times is just a sham. You're no closer to me today than you were yesterday or last year. And so Jesus comes at the end, at the end of this passage, verses 28 through 30, and he says this, knowing that there are proud, arrogant, wise, intelligent people and that there are childlike people within earshot he says come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest I think what Jesus is indicating there is that the people who truly know the father people who truly know the son also know something about themselves they know that they're weak they know that they're tired. They know that they're worn down. They know that they need something outside of themselves 
to find the rest that their hearts desperately crave. And to bring this contrast between the wise and the intelligent and the childlike to its most pointed display, Jesus holds out to everyone what everyone enjoys, rest. Who doesn't enjoy rest? Everyone loves rest. Why wouldn't they come? Well, the problem is, is because when they see Jesus, they don't see rest. They hear the other part of that. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the next part of that verse? You, you can, it's right there. Not a trick question. Verse 29. Take my yoke. That doesn't sound restful. Does it? A yoke is what you throw on when you have to carry things. Right? A yoke is what's used for work. So Jesus says, everyone who's tired, come and I'll give you rest. But you find rest by taking on my yoke. Well, which is it? Are you going to give me rest or are you going to give me work? And the miracle comes through again. That the ones who truly see Jesus for who he is, see Jesus as the only true source of rest, and they also find putting on his yoke to be a joy, right? The world is out there, and the world, if you present Christ to them, the world does not see Jesus as restful. The world sees Jesus as a killjoy. The world sees Jesus as what you have to give up, what you have to sacrifice. The world sees Jesus as losing free time, losing entertainment, losing habits that I'd rather keep. The world does not see Jesus as restful. It does not look at the yoke of Jesus. It does not see Jesus as a gentle, humble master. And all of this that Jesus says, I think ultimately is getting to the point, the only reason you see him as restful, the only reason you know that he's a gentle master the only reason that you've come to experience that rest is because God has given you the ability to see things that on your own you would never see. Three takeaways, having walked through this passage. Number one, be faithful to preach a foolish message. Be faithful to preach a foolish message. One of the great correctives that, Ma- that this passage in Matthew 11 offers us is that it reminds us of the fact that it is not our job to try to improve upon the gospel. We cannot improve on the person and work of Christ. 
so as to make him more acceptable and more appealing to people who don't want him to begin with. Rather than falling to our knees and acknowledging with Jesus that all of this, this entire work of salvation, everything that God is doing in redemption is all His plan and His work, we feel like God's missed a few points. Well, God, if you just let Him know this, or if you just told Him that, if you didn't give Him this take up your cross and follow me business, right? If you didn't give him the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection, right? All the, it's just so off-putting. If you just toned it down a little bit, made it seem maybe not so crazy or weird, there are tons of people out there who would love to know you. And this passage of Scripture says, no, they don't. At this point in Jesus' ministry, what more can the Father do? Hebrews 1 says that long ago, the Father, God the Father, spoke to our fathers in many different ways, many different means, through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. The clearest most articulate expression that God has ever given has been the person of Jesus Christ. If they are not willing to hear the message of Christ, if they can't see Christ, the church needs to be able to lovingly say, we have nothing else to offer. Understand, I'm not saying you close your doors to people. I'm not saying that you don't do acts of kindness and acts of service just for the sake of showing love and mercy to other people. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that the church needs to humble herself to recognize that we have no authority to say that we can make the message of Christ better if we just make it more appealing. Because at the end of the day, if I make the message more appealing, or if I win someone over just by the sheer force of my argument or intellect or whatever it is, who ultimately is getting the credit for that? Not God. Because I had to tweak his message to make it more palatable for others. Paul says this beautifully in 1 Corinthians one We'll put it up on the screen. Paul says this, almost, well, not almost verbatim, in keeping with what Jesus says here, notice the similarity of what Paul says to the Corinthians. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased. God is pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Do you, do you get what, that, what Paul is saying there? God, in his wisdom, determined before the foundation of the world that the world's wisdom would not be able to figure him out. God did that on purpose. God determined 
that human ingenuity, human intelligence, all the most brilliant minds and philosophers were never, through sheer effort or willpower, were never going to be able to figure out what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ. And God also goes so far, the Father goes so far as to say, the way that I'm going to bring salvation and redemption, the way that I'm going to show my power over sin and over death, is through the worst display of weakness the world could ever imagine. I'm going to show my power in a crucifixion. Number two, walk in a spirit of humble gratitude. If, according to Jesus, the Father has sovereignly, judiciously, wisely hidden the truth from some and revealed it to others, do we have any ground on which to stand and brag? Why, why are you even here this morning? Well, because God just had to have me. Or I heard and I was able to put the pieces together. Garbage. The only reason you and I are here today is because God gave us the ability to see what we otherwise would not and could not see. And so Paul says this, again in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. We'll put it up on the screen. Consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, not yours, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you, when you wrestle with Scripture and you come to see and understand, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, who regards you as superior? What do you have that, that you did not receive? Anything that you have, it was given to you. You didn't create anything. You didn't earn any of this. And the more you come to see all that you have in Christ as nothing but a sheer gift of God's grace, the more humble you become. By the way, not only will you become more humble, the paradox is you will become bolder in your witness for Christ. Because when you realize and understand that the key to salvation is not dependent upon my turn of the phrase or how well or poorly I articulate the truth of the gospel, but it is all a work of God, just let it all hang out. 
and let God do what he knows he's going to do anyway. Parents, recognize that one of the best, one of, the best thing that you can do for your children is to pray for them. Because even on your best day, when you look like as close when you look as close to the image of Jesus as you have ever looked, if their eyes aren't open, they're not gonna see it. On your best day, when you open up and you read a little Bible story to them and you explain it so clearly and so well that the youngest of your children could understand it, if their ears aren't open, they didn't hear it. If their hearts aren't soft, they're not going to receive it. And so you're brought back again to the humble realization that both in my salvation and the salvation of my family, of my coworkers, of the society, culture around me, all of this is God's gift. And so I plead for it, and I ask and I cry out, God, would you do more than what you have already done? And God shows himself to be generous and gracious over and over and over again. Point number three, or application number three, be diligent, be diligent to rest in Christ, under Christ, on Christ, your master. This is where we come back to, come to me, all you who are weary, burdened down, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. There are many of you in this room today who do not know the rest that Jesus offers because you're unwilling to take on his yoke. Again, it goes back to pride and arrogance. You think you know the best way to live. You think you know the way to find peace and joy and happiness. Even Christians fall into that trap. And so in Hebrews, there's a warning that's given. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter into that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You disobey what is clearly revealed in Scripture, you miss rest. You fail to come to Christ and to yield to Him and to follow Him to take up your cross, no rest. But for all who would come who would recognize that there is no rest apart from Christ, Christ says, here it is. You take my yoke, get rid of yours, get rid of cultural obligations, expectations, get rid of the bondage and the burden of trying to do it yourself. You take my yoke on, I'll show you how to live, how to strive, how to work. But the miracle is, is that as you work for me and walk with me, you find it restful. 
John says in 1 John chapter 5, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. God, by his grace, works such a transformation in the heart and mind of his people that obedience to our Lord is a joy and is a delight. So, as you go out, first and foremost, don't go out, sit down at the restaurant, look at all the people sitting around at, you know, tables across from you and say, well, we heard about those guys today. Those poor, miserable people. Wise and intelligent, blind as a bat. That's, that's not the point of this message. All right? Just to reiterate, the point of this passage is to say that to a certain extent, all of us are in that boat, all of us are in that camp until God opens our eyes and our ears. As you're sitting there at the table and you're looking across the way, you say, that was me or that should be me. But isn't God great and good to give me what I wasn't even looking for, what I didn't even want? And then people, parents, grandparents, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers here in the church, I would appeal appeal to you most of all One of the best things that you can do for your children or grandchildren, one of the best things that you can do for younger members of Edgewood Baptist is to show that taking on the yoke of Christ is a joyful, restful, peaceful endeavor. So that your children see you following the words of Christ And they see that you enjoy doing it, not because it's an obligation, not because you have to, but because you want to. And God help me when I don't want to, pray and ask him to give you the desire to do what he has already willed for you to do. Let that rest and that joy that you find in Christ be contagious for your children and grandchildren and for others that you happen to rub shoulders with in the workplace or even here in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us our pride and arrogance, our callousness in thinking that you needed anything that we could offer or give. You're totally content apart from us. There is no reason for you to bring us into your family, to adopt us as your children, apart from the fact that you were good and merciful and that in saving sinners, undeserving sinners, you put your glory on display. Father, we thank you that we have been given eyes to see Jesus Christ, as he really is. We thank you that when we look at him, you have given us the ability to see where we can find our true source of rest. Father, I pray that as we go out of here this morning, that you would just continue to bring us to greater places of humility with joy, 
that you would also, Father, give us a, a better understanding and clarity as to why it is that so many people that we see around us just do not care to have anything to do with Christ. They're blind, Father. Help us to remember that. Help us to respond with compassion and with patience, even as we wait for you to do a miraculous work in their lives, just as you've done in ours. Father, no one regards us as superior. All that we have, we have already received, and we give you the praise for it. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.